light and gives light to all who believe and God has asked each one of us to reflect the light of the sun just the way the moon reflects the light of the sun we are called to reflect the light of God that's where the this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine song it's not about us trying to self-generate light the lesser light the moon never makes its own light it simply reflects the light of the sun as life happens, things come at us that distract us from God's commands and will for us. As Pastor Daniel describes the function of the lampstand in the tabernacle, we'll picture ourselves as a mirror, the light reflectors of Jesus. When the mirror is dirty, the light is dull, or there is darkness. When the light shines, we can bring light, love, and truth to a dark world. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part three of his message entitled, God's custom furniture. Notice what happens. In verse 29, it gets unique because there's plates and dishes, pitchers and bowls. So this has the idea of just a normal table set. That there's going to be, and I'm going to explain all this for you. And then ultimately, this is where the bread's going to go. The bread is going to go. Now, remember, God has made a covenant with the children of Israel. And in that culture, every covenant was confirmed by a covenantal celebration. We saw that a few weeks back, didn't we? Where God had them come up to the mountain and they had table fellowship together. It's kind of like if we could share a table together, then we are in agreement with one another. And so the showbread functions as another reminder that God has come to peace with the people, that they can share a meal together, that they are no longer at odds with one another. And what's interesting is this showbread, it might be best translated the bread of the presence of the presence or the bread of faces. And the idea is, is that there is a table set with fresh bread between God and the people, which has the implication that there is perpetual fellowship, that we have the opportunity to be together. It'd be like potlucks all the time with the Lord. That's what the implication is. But think about it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. The bread was meant to only be eaten by the priests. We have one time David and his warriors get a little bit of it. And Jesus brings that up in the Gospels. Let he who hears, let him understand. Go do the homework on that. But this was the food for the priests. And again, we go to the book of Leviticus, explains it more. We find that there's going to be how many pieces of bread or loaves? Twelve. In stacks of six and six symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. The provision of God, the bread of life, for all of his chosen people. Jesus, I'm the bread of life. See, when we hear Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life, we think, okay, Jesus is like the wonder bread of life, okay. But for the children of Israel, when he says, I'm the bread of life, 
they automatically think the miraculous manna from heaven and the table of showbread that stands, that sits reminding the people that they have a relationship with God, that God has given them an opportunity and made a commitment to them. See, even we hear words like covenant. It doesn't mean the same thing to us because we are really bad at making covenants and keeping covenants. And we have a huge legal system that's all about you broke a covenant, you, broke, you made an agreement, you broke it, you signed documents, you went back on it. We, our whole culture is is surrounded by broken covenants. And what's interesting is in a fallen world, covenants break. But when a covenant is made with a perfect and holy God, that covenant doesn't break. We may fail, but he doesn't fail. And that's why God put the table of showbread there to be like, look, I've made a covenant with you. And this is going to sit here perpetually to remind you that I have made a promise to you that I intend to keep. And that's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. Because God is faithful. That doesn't mean that God does everything the way we want Him to. What it means is that God, being all-knowing and all-wise, will always do what's in our ultimate best interest, even if we don't understand it. And I believe that's why the book of Job is in the Bible. The book of Job is in the Bible to remind us that we do not understand everything about everything. And if we're quite honest, we understand very little about a lot of things. Because everything that went on for Job, everything that went on, Job didn't understand it. Did God ever tell him why he did it? No. God simply told Job, Job, you don't understand what's going on. The last four or five chapters, you just don't understand. Now, I believe that this is for somebody here today, or maybe a lot of you. There's things going on, and you don't understand what God is doing. And you're just like, God, I just want to know why, and God's not telling you. I want to encourage you to be okay with God not having to tell you everything, because he's God. Some, sometimes God leaves things for us not to know. Because if he tells us everything, then we don't have to walk by faith at all. We don't have to believe in him. We have to simply just be like, oh, well, I'll only trust God if he tells me every single detail I need to know. We punish our kids for acting that way. I won't eat my green beans unless you explain to me why I need them. Well, let me explain to you every detail about, you know what I'm, you understand what I'm saying? See, God is God and we are not. God is all-knowing and we have a very limited view of what is going on. The smartest person in here has maybe a decent amount of information on something very small. But God knows the beginning and the end as, it's, as if it's the ever-present right now. God is the Alpha and the Omega at the same time. God is under no obligation to us to explain everything. And I'll be honest with you, a God who explains everything to us so we don't have to trust him isn't worthy to be praised. A God who we can understand every single detail is not a God worthy of worship. So for us, I believe God wants us to trust him. God wants us to learn how to trust, especially when we don't understand. It's easy to trust what we do understand. But we believe in a God who will work all things together for good, for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what Romans 8.28 says. And that doesn't mean that he's going to make everything the way we think good is. He's saying, I'm going to use all of this 
to make you more like Jesus, which is who you really want to be. But oftentimes, we just want what we want, right? So a lot of times, God doesn't give us all the details. He doesn't explain everything to us. But he is God. And he knows exactly, exactly what he's doing. And for you and I, what we need to remember when we don't understand, how many times have you heard it? When there's something you don't understand, what should you do? Rely on what you do understand. So in the things that go on that we don't understand, we come back to, what do I understand? Well, I understand that God loves me and sees me for who I really am. That God knows everything about me and sees my flaws and he loves me. And how do I know he loves me? Do we feel it all the time? No. We know he loves us because he sent Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. I said, well, how, how do I know that? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That means God loved you enough to send his own son to take the punishment that you deserved. So when all of life makes no sense, you're like, well, what do I understand? That God does love me. That God is for me and not against me. And that's why being raised in a broken world, that grace, that gospel is so hard to embrace. It's so hard to embrace because it's so different from everything else. Everywhere else we learn, you will be blessed or get what you want if you do what somebody, what is expected of you. That if you don't do what's expected of you, you're going to get hurt and something bad's going to happen. We have all this stuff, right? If you're speeding on the highway and a cop's behind you, you're going to get a ticket, right? That's justice or maybe not. But God's way is your speed on a highway and he pulls you over and he gives you a brand new car, a bunny, and a cookie. That's what grace, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So ima imagine next time you get pulled over, you know, and you're speeding and the cop's like, man, you are speeding. You're like, oh no, I'm going to lose my license. He's like, here's the keys to a Ferrari. Here's a new puppy and a cookie. God is the only person in the world who functions that way. Because you know what? We say, well, that's reckless of God. It is. But when, when God gives us grace instead of justice, when God gives us his spirit instead of judgment, we start to live in response to that. And they're like, you know what? I really shouldn't speed because that cop gave me a great car and it could go fast again. But you know what? Why would I want to break the law of such a good, a good gift? It totally changes the way that we live. So when something goes on that you don't understand, go back to what you do understand. And what's beautiful about the table of showbread is that in the heart of God before the foundations of the earth, Jesus was the lamb slain. In putting the table with the bread in the tabernacle and in the temple, the children of Israel needed to know that, yes, you're going to have to do a lot of sacrifices. And ultimately, all the sacrifices are going to be abolished because I'm going to send my son, but I made a commitment to you and I intend to keep it. That's the gospel. The gospel is that everyone else will fail you, but God is faithful. God does not quit on us. And no matter how far we get away, if we turn to him, he's like, look, I have made a commitment to you. Isn't that what the entire book of Hosea is about? Do you remember Hosea, the prophet? God said, look, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And Hosea was like, huh? Went and married her. And God said, look, I'm making you act out prophetically what's going on. My people have strayed. They've committed spiritual adultery. 
but I want you to marry her because I made a commitment to people who stray like sheep who've gone astray. And then her name was Gomer. Don't name your daughters Gomer. <laughs> I think uh, Pastor John Bishop over at Living Hope did a series called I Am a Gomer. It's, it's actually quite witty. I thought it was really cute, but don't name your girls Gomer, please. But what's interesting is Gomer goes, leaves the relationship. Like literally leaves Hosea. And God says, Hosea, why don't you go get her and bring her back? Even though she's cheated on you, even though she's out playing the harlot on you, I want you to bring her back. He's like, look, the reason I'm having you do that is because my kids have strayed, my bride has strayed, and I'm still committed. And made Hosea act that out for the people. That's why that book's in your Bible. And that table of showbread sat there. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life to say, look, no matter where you go, and if you're here today and you're far away from God, you're outside of Christ, no matter where you are, God has made a commitment to you. He knew everything about you. He knew everything you were going to do. He knew all the porn you were going to look at. He knew all the stupid things you were going to do. He knew all of it. And he said, look, he said, look, I'm making a commitment to you. And so if you turn to him today, no matter what's going on in your life, if you turn to him today, he's waiting for you because he never wrote you off. He never wrote you off. And that's what that showbread is about. That's what it's about. It's to say, look, no matter where you've been, I've made a commitment. There's a table always set for you. That's how God works. And that's why the table of showbread is there. Now notice verse 31. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece, and six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand, verse 34, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. And you shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it, and its wick trimmers, verse 38, and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, now we have this golden lampstand. In the Hebrew, it's the menorah. So we know the menorah most commonly because of the celebration of Hanukkah, which is the special celebration. We don't have it in our Bible. It's actually in the intertestamental books. You can read about it if you grab the, if you grab the writings that are the, between the closing of the canon and before the New Testament, first, second, and third Maccabees specifically. Um, that's why the name Judas was technically common in that day. We, nobody names their kids Judas anymore unless they're trying to be provocative. 
But Judas was a very popular name because Judas Maccabee was one of the, the Hasmonean dynasties who cleansed the temple after it had been um, ransacked by a, a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And so what happened was, is that once they took, I mean, this man was so evil that he slaughtered a pig, which was considered to be an unclean animal, and he smeared the pig blood all over the temple, just desecrating the temple. And, and when Judas Maccabees and his brothers went and they conquered him, they needed to cleanse the temple, and they only had enough oil to keep the lampstand lit for one day, and it lasted them for six days until they could purify the new oil. And that's why in Hanukkah they light a candle every day and they keep it lit. That's exactly where it comes from. And it's all about this lampstand. Now, don't, don't miss this. This is a tent. The only light in there was this lampstand. The only piece of light in the whole, the whole place is dark except for this golden lampstand. The whole thing is one piece of hammered gold. You notice where it says here towards the end that it should be made of one talent of gold. That means that this is 75 pounds. That's what a talent was. 70. So this is a 75 pound pure gold lampstand. Anybody want one of those in their house? <laughs> or in your safe, maybe? I mean, 75 pounds, you know, that would be worth what? Like uh, $100,000 today, given the, the exchange rate for gold right now. So this is, this is some ser- serious custom work here. The whole thing... The whole thing was modeled after the almond tree. And the almond tree and its blossoms was the first blossoming tree in the Near East in the spring. It would begin to blossom in December. So the whole thing is laid out. You notice there's the three on each side. There's the blossoms. It's a very ornate piece of golden work. And it's I, the reason it's there is to light up the holy place. And of course... Jesus said, I am the what? The light of the world. A city set on hill cannot be hidden. You don't take a lamp and put it under a bushel, but you put it on a lampstand that it might shine light to all the world. It's beautiful. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the lampstand. I am the one who brings light and gives light to all who believe. And God has asked each one of us to reflect the light of the sun. Just the way the moon reflects the light of the sun, we are called to reflect the light of God. That's where the, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine song. It's not about us trying to self-generate light. The lesser light, the moon never makes its own light. It simply reflects the light of the sun. And that's why when you meet somebody who's walking with the Lord, there's a lightness to them, isn't there? There's a you know, people use the word like there's an energy or an aura. That's the common language. No, they're just reflecting the purest light because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And when you think about a mirror that's meant to reflect, a mirror struggles to reflect when it's dirty. And Jesus came to cleanse the mirror, to take away what hinders God's light from being reflected. And we can all be honest here. We all struggle not to, to keep that mirror clean, don't we? Because every single day, stuff happens. Life happens. We have our own struggles. People who are around have their struggles. And everything wants to snuff the light out. 
to, to dial it back and don't miss it back when your light shines really bright. You also become a little bit of a target. So everything about our lives in this world is trying to diminish the light. And God's like, look, I just want you to simply respond to me and reflect that light. So this beautiful lampstand, it's all meant to point to Jesus. And it's interesting, if you read your Bibles, this lampstand pops up in Zechariah chapter 4. We're going to be starting this new series a week from Sunday on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the one that we're doing called Case Study. But right away in chapter 1, we see Jesus walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. And those seven lampstands in that picture are meant to be pictures of churches. Why? Because as Jesus is the light, he said, I am the light of the world. And then what did he say? You're the light of the world. The job of the people of God in every generation is to reflect his light in the world. He wants us to be his light reflectors everywhere we go, as the church, as the people of God. That's what he wants us to be. And that's why I think there's such a a battle to keep being a reflector of light. Because it's the one thing that God wants us to be, and it's the one thing that if Satan can have the people of God not reflect his light, then he gets exactly what he wants, which is darkness proliferating. So you and I are called to be light in the darkness, just the way Jesus is light in the darkness. We're called to bring love where there's hatred. We're called to bring grace where there's judgment. We're, we're called to bring an open arm where there's a shut door. And we do all of that with love in truth. We don't pretend that truth isn't truth. We embrace the truth and we let that truth fuel how we love people. And as Christians, we're always saying, look, we love everybody. We don't love what everybody does. And that's a real honest love. Anyone who's been married for any amount of time knows what that's like. You love them, but you're like, I don't love that about them. Right? You actually don't even have to be married to know that. Anybody who's ever loved anyone, you love your parents, they're not perfect. You love your brothers and sisters, they're not perfect. You don't love everything that they do, but you love them still. You choose to overlook certain things about them. And so as Christians, with a firm grasp of the gospel, we always say, look, we love everybody. We don't agree that everything is spiritually fulfilling and good for somebody, but we still love them. And isn't loving the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Especially when someone's doing something that we despise. Especially when we see people hurting themselves, hurting others. But we're still called to love. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. And he's saying, look, I want you to be the light of the world. And when God customized the decor of his tabernacle, he put a beautiful light in there. The one light that shines in the darkness. That's why Jesus used the picture. Put a lamp on a lampstand that'll give light to all. That's why it's there. Beautiful picture right here. So there it is. Three pieces of God's custom furniture. Jesus is should reflect God's light. Pastor Daniel challenged us to make sure that we were cleaned up enough to reflect that light. Like a clean versus dirty mirror, God wants us to respond to Him, and the lampstand points to Jesus, our light. 
God is doing some amazing things with Jesus is Real Radio. It's our vision to see Jesus is Real Radio on more radio stations worldwide and to help change lives across the globe. You can help see this vision come to life by sending a gift of any amount to 7708 Northeast 78th Street, Vancouver, Washington, 98662. Again, to send a gift of any amount to Jesus is Real Radio, simply send your gift to 7708 Northeast 78th Street, Vancouver, Washington, 98662. Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will explain how the tabernacle, the tent, was to be the center of life for God's people. That's where God would meet with them. We'll find out how that translates directly to Jesus. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series entitled Tabernacle. Until then, may God bless. Oh,